Good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm glad you've joined us in worship this morning. Today, as you've noticed, either on the PowerPoint or on your notes, I called the sermon, Why So Salty? Why So Salty? And the way I'm thinking about that is in the 21st century way of using that term. When people say, why so salty nowadays, what they mean are, why are you so angry? Why so salty? To be salty is to be agitated or upset. Now, I realize it's meant different things in the past. I learned yesterday talking with someone that it sometimes meant something was very expensive, it was salty. But today, when people say, why so salty? What they mean is, why are you so angry? Why are you so bitter? Why are you so upset about that? And if you look at the world around us, everyone seems to be salty, to be angry all the time. I think the phrase they use is a call-out culture, or maybe they call it an outrage culture. Everything that anybody does, someone is going to get upset about it and call out and say why what you just did or said makes them upset. Now, there's some ways that this kind of thing is a little bit good because it's a good thing to call out injustice. And there are things that are being pointed out that are wrong that should have been corrected many, many years ago. So that's a good thing. But even still, there are ways to point out that something is wrong or unjust without getting outraged about it. And there are many things that are just not worth getting upset about. So in a world that's salty, in a world that's angry all the time, is there another way that we can live? Well, today we're going to return to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to read a passage where Jesus says that his disciples are to be salt and light. They are salt and light. And this is how God wants his people to make a difference in the world, not by being angry, but by being different in a way that draws people to a relationship with Christ. So if you're here and you do not know Jesus, but you're exhausted by the anger around you, well, I have good news. There is hope for a better life. Jesus says, don't be salty, be salt and light. Well, let's find out how. If you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, looking at verses 13 through 16. If you want to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 510, going over to page 511. So Matthew, big number 5, little numbers 13 through 16. And once you are there, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I'm going to be reading in the English Standard Version. In verse 13, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we talk about how you make your people salt and you make them light, 
We know that the source of that light only comes from you. And in this moment, God, we need you to help us understand and grasp your word and see how we are to live as salt and as light. Thank you for making us salt and light in the world, God. Convict us when we try to hide who we are. Lead us to shine, to live in such a way that brings glory to you, that draws people into a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. We know it's only possible because of him. He must get the glory at this time. So as John the Baptist said, John 3.30, God, we pray right now that he would increase, that I would decrease, that we could see him clearly in your word and in our lives. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to talk about where we are in Scripture. Once again, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a passage that's located in the Gospel according to Matthew. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there are four Gospels, four accounts, four stories of the life of Jesus, and Matthew is the first one. And early in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, there's the longest uninterrupted sermon or speech from Jesus that we have. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a model example of the kinds of things Jesus preached about and what he cared about. This message is Jesus' call for his disciples that they should live a life of exceeding righteousness. Because of who they are, his people should live differently. Now, if you're here last week, we looked at the beginning of the sermon at a passage known as the Beatitudes. It was a list that told us the true character of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus Christ. A true Christian has a certain character before God, within themselves, and before others. And someone who has the character of Jesus, we can say, is truly blessed. Back in the Beatitudes, every verse began with blessed, blessed, blessed. But now that Jesus has explained what a Christian looks like on the inside, he begins to transition now to how a Christian should live on the outside. And to do that, he uses two illustrations in his sermon, and those illustrations are what we're going to talk about today. First, Jesus says that his followers, they are the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In this verse, Jesus is really emphasizing that first word, you. He's saying, you are the salt of the earth. His disciples and them alone are the only true salt in the world. Jesus is reminding them they are in the world to make a difference. They're not to retreat to a little holy huddle. They are to be in the world. Salt that's left in its container does nothing. But at the same time, he's also saying that they are salt. They are salt. He's not saying it's something they can be. He's not saying it's something they can grow to become. He's saying they are the salt of the earth. A follower of Jesus is the salt of the earth. And that means it's important for us to understand what salt is if we're going to grasp what Jesus is saying. So what is salt? Well, it does at least two things. Salt is a preservative and a seasoning. It's a preservative and a seasoning. First, it helps preserve food. This was written almost 2,000 years ago, and in the ancient world, they did not have refrigerators. So if you wanted to store meat, you couldn't put it in a freezer or a fridge. You could use salt, though. Salt preserves. It prevents decay. And so what that means is Jesus' people are in the world to prevent decay. 
In a world that is rough and ugly, Jesus' followers are to be different. They are to preserve truth, preserve beauty, preserve kindness and civility when everyone else has no time for such things. Christians should be those who insist that truth matters, who insist that treating people with kindness matters, and who insist that viewing every single person as created in the image of God, that matters. When others want to reject truth, when they want to reject beauty and kindness, God's people are to stand firm. But on the other hand, salt is also a seasoning. It's a seasoning. It adds taste. It adds flavor to food. Now, as most of you in this room know, I got married a few months ago, and since then, I've been eating a little differently than I ate when I was a single man. Before marriage, I considered any meal that took longer for than five minutes to make in the microwave, that was a long meal. That was going to, and more often than not, that wasn't worth my time to make that. But since then, since then, I've had a lot more meals that take time to prepare, or at the very least, require the use of a slow cooker to make. And so some days, if we need it, some days I help get the food ready. And I'm no expert at all, but I can usually follow directions. But what, something I've noticed as I've been using more ingredients in making food is there's something really fascinating that happens when you have a huge pot that's full of meat or vegetables or anything else, how it can taste completely different with just a teaspoon of salt or just a tablespoon of some other spice or seasoning. And even though you can't see that salt, you can't see the seasoning once you mix it in, it affects everything in it. You can taste the difference in every single bite. Jesus is telling his followers to be salt of the earth. He's saying that his followers will make a difference in the world. Their lives will have an impact on everyone around them. That happens not because they're amazing, but because they've been given a gift from an amazing God. They'll, they will be a seasoning that makes life on this planet special and makes it better. Through each individual Christian's gifts, their talents, their occupations, yes, their jobs, God blesses His creation. This is because Christians know that they are serving God, so they work well. They work hard. They work diligently. They do more than what is expected because they know they are serving God and not man. Those who know Jesus will be a force for God's good and for His glory in the world. To be salt is to be a seasoning for the world. And this preserving, this seasoning happens because Christians are different from other people. After all, salt tastes different from normal food. That's what makes it special. If we put salt on something, we expect it to then taste differently. If it tastes the same after we put salt on it, we either put more salt on or we use better salt. And in the rest of verse 13, Jesus is warning the disciples about this very thing. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If salt loses its taste, if it loses its saltiness or its flavor, then it's no longer functioning as salt. At that point, it's not even worth considering how to get the seasoning, the taste back into it. It cannot be seasoned. It cannot be made salty again. 
And when Jesus is speaking, salt in the ancient world they used, it could often become contaminated or impure. And at that point, it was then good for nothing. To paraphrase Jesus, at that point, you might as well throw it into the street and let people trample it into dust. Jesus uses some of the same words in the Gospel of Luke, but he adds a little bit. Luke 14, 34, and 35, he says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Ouch, those are some harsh words from Jesus. He's saying even manure is better than saltless salt because at least that can be used as fertilizer. But tasteless salt is good for nothing. Jesus is making a very convicting point for his audience. He's telling them that his followers are to be in the world, but they're also to be distinct from it. Because if those who claim the name of Christ, if they're exactly the same as everyone else around them, then they are like salt that has lost its taste. And in terms of advancing the good news of Christ's kingdom, they're good for nothing. Pastor John Stott once said, the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel worldwide is the failure of the lives of God's people. The thing that holds back God's call is most is a failure in the lives of his people. People who say they are Christians but do not live like it, they're actively harming the cause of Christ. And why is that? Because for those who do not know Jesus, the lives of Christians are the only examples of godliness that they will ever see. After all, they can't see God, they can only see his people. And if Christians are not different from the unbelieving world, then the attraction of a life submitted to Christ, that attraction is gone. So friends, you gain nothing of eternal value by calling yourself a Christian and then ignoring what God has said. So think to yourself, is is that me? Is that you? Do I read God's word, but then I ignore it and I go and I do what I want? You gain nothing then if you call yourself a Christian. Look at God's word. See what he says. Turn away from that rebellion against him and come to know him and have a relationship with him. But you know what? Just obeying God in private, well, that's really not enough either because Jesus says they're not just salt. They're the salt of the earth. God's people are to interact with the rest of the world. They're to engage the world as the salt they are. So again, Jesus is not telling his people to be disconnected from the world. And you know, even if we really wanted to be completely disconnected, that would be impossible because much of our life is determined by the culture that we live in. After all, if you look around, we wear the same kinds of clothes as people, whether they're in church or not. We generally eat the same kinds of food. We speak the same language. We share the same culture. But still, Jesus is saying there's supposed to be something different about the church. So if it's not the clothes we wear, if it's not the food we eat, if it's not the language we speak, what makes God's people unique? Well, it must be the way that we live. It must be a character that reflects Jesus as reflected in those beatitudes we talked about last week. The president of the seminary or the Bible college I went to was named Danny Aiken, and he wrote this. He says, if we maintain our commitments and convictions to Christ with grace and humility, then people will inevitably take notice. They will be drawn to us. 
we will season the world with truth, with justice, with goodness, and with righteousness. So let me ask, how do you influence those around you? Do you work harder? Do you more, work more diligently than the rest of your classmates or your coworkers? Do you take advantage of the opportunities you have to reflect God's grace? Do you take advantage of those opportunities you have to show His character each and every day with the people you interact with? Can your friends, can your classmates, what about your coworkers, your neighbors, can they look at your life and see, yes, there's something different about that person? So in Jesus' way of using the word, are you salty? But in this sermon, Jesus uses another illustration to make this point. The second thing he tells his people, his disciples, is that they are the light of the world. In verses 14 through 16, he says, you are the light of the world of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Light is very important to God. On the very first day of the earth's existence, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Light is brightness, it's truth, it's warmth. It gives us the ability to see and to survive on this planet. Light is the only thing that pierces the darkness. And in these three verses, Jesus uses the word light four times. So this is an important truth. God has brought light into the world. But what Jesus says, it's not just that God brought light. It's not God said, let there be light and there was light. Jesus says that it is now his disciples. It's his people. It's Christians themselves who are the light. After all, he says, you are the light of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it must mean that Jesus has changed his people where their lives were once defined by sin and darkness, now they are full of life and light. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. They were stuck in darkness, but Jesus brought them into the light of God's salvation and Paul is calling the Ephesians to walk, to live by that light, to live like God has changed their lives, to live in a way that honors Him. Now, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian this morning. Well, that means according to Paul and according to Jesus, that means you are in darkness. You are blind and you are bound by sin and darkness. But Jesus offers light and life. Your sin against God keeps you away from Him, but Jesus offers freedom in His light. He did that by coming to earth. He was fully man and fully God, and He lived a perfect life that we can't live because we sin and make mistakes and mess up, and we reject God's laws and His rules, but Jesus, He lived perfectly. And then He died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And so now, if we will turn away from that sin and rebellion, if we will trust Him we will rely on Him, believe in who He is and what He has done, then we can have a relationship with Him, and we can be 
in his light. I'd encourage you, if you do not understand or you don't know, you want to learn more, you're interested in hearing about how you can have a relationship with Jesus, please talk to me. I always have time to talk about how you can know Jesus Christ or talk to someone else who you know is a believer about how you can have a relationship with him because you can know Jesus and you can be changed by his light. And Jesus can do this because light is powerful. And just a tiny bit can make a huge difference. Think about it. No matter how dark a room may seem, if there is even a sliver of light sneaking through a doorway or through a window, then eventually you can see everything in the room. I know I've gone into rooms before that are completely dark, and if I don't turn a light on and go in, I think it's pitch black. But if there's just a little light coming through the window or coming under the door, if I stay there long enough, eventually I can even read by that tiny bit of light. Christ brings that power. He brings that light into the lives of those who know Him. He puts His truth, His goodness, His righteousness in them. He puts His light in them so that others may see the power of His light. Pastor Charles Spurgeon says, Christ has lighted us, He has made us light, that we may enlighten the world. Christ has lighted us that we may enlighten the world. Christians are so passionate about sharing their faith with others, telling other people about what Jesus has done for them because they have been changed by God. Jesus has given them light. He has given them something to share, and the world needs to know. Now, nevertheless, it's important, though, for Christians to remember where is our light coming from? Because we're not producing this light in and of ourselves. We did not create it. No, we are reflecting Jesus's light. We sang a bunch of songs talking about how Jesus is light and God has given us light. They're coming from passages like this, John 8, 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By living like Jesus, by talking like Jesus, by treating others like Jesus treated them, we are reflecting the light of this one who is the light of the world. It's like how the moon reflects the sun. We reflect Jesus' glorious light back to the world. So we're a conduit. We're a channel of the light. We're not its source. After all, if I have a lamp and I don't plug it into the outlet, there's not going to be any light coming from it. A candle will not burn unless there is a wick and a match. Jesus must be the source of our light. So again, if you don't know Jesus, that means you are not salt and you cannot reflect his light. But oh, oh, what an amazing privilege and amazing joy it is to know Jesus and to shine his light. In the rest of this passage, the last two verses we haven't talked about are two and a half verses, Jesus is going to explain what being the light of the world means for his people, for his followers. And he gives two very powerful applications of this. If they are the light of the world, what does that mean? And first, Jesus says, don't hide, don't hide. He doesn't use those words, but he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A true believer in Jesus cannot be hidden. 
And he uses that example, a city, a town set on a hill to make this point. You can see it for miles. Now, this phrase is sometimes misunderstood or or misapplied. And to grasp what Jesus is meaning, we should remember who he's talking to here. Like the salt in verse 13, the you is emphasized. He's saying, you are the light of the world. And so the people he is speaking to are this light. And who are these people? Who is listening to him? Are they brave warriors? Is it powerful politicians? Is it social media influencers who are here? No, no, that's not who he's talking to. He's speaking to his disciples and his followers who were mostly poor Jews from a tiny backwater area of the country. They're not even from Jerusalem, the most important city in this small country in this vast empire. No, they're from this outskirt region called Galilee that was looked down on by others. To the rest of the world, this is a small group of nobodies that Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. But Jesus doesn't see him this way. Yes, to Jesus, they're ordinary people, but to Jesus, they are ordinary people who know him. They are people who have a relationship with him. That means when Jesus says a city on a hill cannot be hidden, he's not addressing these words to the nation of Israel as a whole. He's not really speaking to any political body or governing force. He is speaking to those who are his disciples. He's speaking to those who follow after him. So to Jesus, a city on a hill referred to those who truly followed him, who truly knew him. It refers to individual Christians gathered together into the one body that we know as the church. And when we try to make that image mean more than that, I think we're pushing it beyond what Jesus was saying. Let me give an example. I was shocked this week as I was preparing for this sermon. I read a sermon by another pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was talking about this verse. And he was saying he was noticing around him that more and more Christians seem interested in politics. Yet he also noticed that the society around him seemed to be becoming more and more immoral. They were obeying God less and less, even though more and more Christians were interested in politics. Despite the best political efforts of Christians, people were sinning worse and worse. You know what's interesting, though? You know when he preached that? That was over 60 years ago that he said that. And this was his conclusion. He said, though the church makes here great pronouncements about war and politics and other major issues, the average man, the average person is not affected. But if you have a man or you have a woman working at a bench, doing their job faithfully, who is a true Christian, whose life has been saved and transformed by the Holy Spirit, well, it does affect others all around him. In other words, God's kingdom is not advanced by Christians gathering together for a political purpose. No, God's purposes are pushed forward by individual believers who have been saved and changed by the Holy Spirit, making a difference right where they are, where they live, work, and play. Friends, the truth is the greatest thing that most of us will do for God's kingdom will be to influence the people we interact with each and every day. I said something like this in a sermon about four years ago before the last presidential election, and I'll say it again now, and may say it multiple times this year, how you live every day, that does more for God's kingdom. How you live every day does more for God's kingdom and more for the good of this country than whoever is in power in Washington. How you live, the decisions you make every day, that makes more of a difference. 
Now, I'm not telling you that elections are unimportant. I am saying that the decisions you make every day, how you choose to live, the words you choose to say, the things you choose to do each and every day, that is more important, much, much more important. In this passage, Jesus is not speaking to the leaders of our country. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to his church. You, Christian, you are a city on a hill, and your life is observed by everyone around you. So what kind of city do they see? Because you cannot hide from their gaze. In the next verse, verse 15, Jesus is continuing this reasoning. He's explaining that a true Christian will neither want to nor be able to hide from the world. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So whether your translation has the lights being put under a basket, under a bowl, or under a bushel, the point is the light cannot be seen. And light that cannot be seen, that's not serving its purpose. In fact, it's not really being a light at all. To go through all the trouble to light a lamp or a candle just to hide it, well, that's foolish. It's completely ridiculous, and nobody does that. Everyone listening to Jesus would have understood, they would have grasped, this is a ridiculous thing. It's foolish to do that. A lamp that is not giving light is not fulfilling its purpose. It's useless, just like the salt we talked about back in verse 13. When a light bulb breaks, we throw it out and we get another one. Light is supposed to give light and spread light abundantly. The life of a true Christian should be a full blast of God's light to the unbelieving world. And that is why believers, those who know Jesus Christ, that's why they avoid sin. That's why they work to remove sin from their lives. They don't do it because, oh, if I don't do this, God might be angry with me. I might lose my salvation. I might not be able to go to heaven. No, the reason they do that is because they know sin blocks the light that God has put in them. It prevents God's light in them from shining. Jesus explains it in a slightly different way in Luke eleven thirty six. He says, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, then the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. If a light is partially covered, well, that's not as effective as one would be that's fully bright and fully shining for all to see. I, I thought of a, a humorous example of, of this, at least when I was growing up. For years, my siblings and I were very amused by a Burger King near here, just down the road on Mountain Road and 22 Allentown Boulevard. It, one time it had a sign similar to this one, but over the years, the lights started going out in that electronic sign. And we would drive by it every Wednesday night, so it was normally dark on our way home from church. And we watched as the name of the restaurant changed over the years. So Burger King became Burger Kin, which then became Burger K. I think it got all the way down to Berg before they finally took the time to renovate the store and replace that sign. Now, during all that time, that restaurant was still Burger King. It never stopped being a Burger King, but its light going down hid that message. It hid the truth of what it actually was. And that, I'm sure, was unintentional. But you know what? When we hide our light, when we hide who we are and what Christ has done for us, we're really doing the same thing. If it makes life hard or inconvenient for us, we may be tempted to hide our light. 
Now, let me say here, I realize there are some places in the world where it's illegal or it's dangerous for someone to be known as a Christian. Maybe it's some place where you're not able to share your faith. And so in those places, it's completely understandable that a Christian would conceal the fact of their faith. But I would point you back to last week. Last week, we read the Beatitudes. And Jesus told us that a Christian is not determined by where they go to church or what religion their Facebook status says they are. No, a true Christian is determined by who they are on the inside. So while in a sense a persecuted believer may have to hide their faith, they can never hide their character. In fact, I would argue that someone who's experiencing persecution probably has a more Christ-like character than many of us who have never experienced real persecution. They may not be able to wear a Christian t-shirt in public, but their character reveals who they are. A true Christian's character will always be seen. So let's then think about us. Let's make it personal. What makes us try to hide the light that Christ has given us? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's fear of what people will think or what people will say if we don't act like they do, if we don't do the same kinds of things. Well, pastor, if I don't laugh at his jokes, then I'll lose all my friends. And you know, if I don't fudge the truth on that report, well, I might lose my job. Everyone else does it. I should do it too. And while we may be tempted by thoughts like that, those can never be the conclusions of a follower of Christ. Neither peer pressure nor your parents' expectations should lead you away from a Christ-honoring life. Christ must come first. Living for Him must come first. Your ambition and your agenda, you cannot use that to sacrifice your character. Well, but you see, if I lie a little bit here, that will put me in a better position, and then I can do more for Christ. I can make a greater difference. No, no, just stop. It's not worth it. That's why there is nothing sadder than someone who claims to be a Christian, but who does not live like it. If they claim to have the greatest news in the world, full of life, light, and joy, but then their world is full of doom and gloom. Now, I'm not talking about someone who's mourning. If, if we have a loss, it's appropriate to take time to mourn, or someone who's repenting, turning away from sin and taking time to mourn that. I'm not talking about that. And I'm well aware that different people have different tendencies, different people have different dispositions, and I'm very familiar with temptations to pessimism and depression. But still, God has done something amazing in the lives of His people that He has saved. And woe to us if we try to hide that. So if you ever feel like concealing your faith of not showing, not revealing your character, not acting in a way that honors God, then remember verse 15. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It is foolish to hide light, and you are the light of the world. So don't hide it. Live as God has called you to live and tell others of the hope that is in you. We are not meant to go through life under the radar. Jesus has made you a light, so make it shine. And in verse 16, Jesus is clear on exactly that point of application. We should not hide our light. Instead, our lives are to shine in such a way that people see our light. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine.
before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They see our good deeds. Everyone should be able to see them. Not because we're drawing attention to ourselves. Look at me, I'm about to do something good. No, but because who we are is so different from the rest of the world. How we are living is completely opposite from the way the rest of the world operates. Because it's then and only then that our works, our deeds, will give glory to God. People will see how we live and they will glorify. They will praise our Father in heaven. Now, last week at the end of the Beatitudes, we talked about how living for Jesus will lead some people to persecute us. And that's true. But here, Jesus is reminding us that living that way will also lead some to praise God by our example. Jesus used a similar imagery, but this time he was talking about fruit in John 15. He says, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So whether you want to think about it as shining a light or bearing fruit, Christians are to bring forth, they're to demonstrate, they are to shine what God has given them. And that brings God glory and praise. It's kind of like if you're opening presents on your birthday or on Christmas and you open something and someone sees somebody in your face and your friends sitting around go, let us see what you got. And so you you hold it up, look around the room so everybody can see this amazing gift you just received. The light, our character, did not come from us. God gave it to us so we would hold it up, we would show it, and that others could see what He has done. Our life is a spotlight on God. Now, God doesn't need that. He's light Himself. He doesn't need a spotlight, but He gives us light so that we may shine it back on Him. Now, you probably know, if you've been here a while, you know that my favorite verse of Scripture is John 3.30. It's where John the Baptist says that he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And one of the reasons that I like that verse so much is because of what Jesus is talking about right here. When he says that our light is to shine so that they may see your good works, but then give glory to your Father in heaven. My life, my words, my actions, they are to reflect light, glory back on Jesus he is the source, so he must get the glory, the praise, and the recognition. I'm not living to make a name for myself. My goal is not to be remembered. My life is about making him known, and that is how God's people are to live. We live for God. We reflect his character so that others may see him. The apostle Peter was one who was listening to Jesus that day, and eventually he understood what Jesus was getting at. And he wrote in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says to Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God has acquired you his possession that, for this purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter knew that God had called every Christian into his marvelous light. And that makes God's people a special, a chosen race. Like how salt tastes, there's something unique about them. They are to proclaim God's excellencies. They're to seek to bring glory, recognition, and praise to Him. Peter then adds in verse 12, just a few verses later, 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who do not know God, keep your conduct, your behavior among them, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That third line, see your good deeds and glorify God, well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5. If our lives are holy and righteous, if we have the boldness to proclaim what kingdom we belong to, then we can have a massive impact for Christ in our world. By living in God's light, living with His character, what we do will lead others to praise God. And this is the call for a true Christian. We are to be salt, we're to preserve, we're to season life on earth, and we are to be light. We're not to hide who we are, but we're to boldly shine God's glory. The Sermon on the Mount in a passage like this, it's not for super Christians. It's not for a super saint. This is how every true believer is to live. There was a man named, I own Keith Falconer. I own Keith Falconer. He was a Scottish missionary in the, was sent to the country of Yemen. But on his way there, he almost out there, he died at the age of 31. And before he passed, he said this, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. Instead of living for comfort, we should seek the hard places to shine Christ's light, his light that he has given us. We have but one candle of life to burn, and how are you using yours? If you don't know Jesus, you don't have this light. You need this light. Ask about how you can receive it. But if you do know Jesus, well, then Christ's light should shine through your life. And every Christian should be reflecting more and more of Christ's light each and every day, growing more and more in what they're able to do for Him. Brothers and sisters, don't be salty. Be salt and light. Don't hide who you are. Be the salt of the earth and shine his light, because Jesus, he alone is worthy.